if you're like me. Faith and joy and service are truly the things that I desire to have manifest in my life. And I want to live in such a way that they are the natural end products of both my words and my actions. I want to finish each day knowing that I have been Jesus Christ to someone, somehow, in the hours that I've been awake. And I suspect that you do too. And yet, there are all kinds of things that stand in the way of that noble intention, some of them appearing before I even manage to get out of bed. When the cell phone dings to remind me that in about three hours I have to be in court in Effingham County, for example. On the other end of the spectrum, it can be something as complex as the unexpected telephone call or the frightening doctor's visit or the painful conversation that divides life into before and after. In those moments, the simple aggravations like standing in line at Walmart, God help us, and the life changers, my impulse, even after all of these years of following Jesus, and yes, I am old enough to say after all of these years of following Jesus, is not necessarily faith and joy, but sometimes panic and fear. And of course, just as the bar on the roller coaster I call, are you kidding me, comes slamming down on my lap, I realize that there is room for one more negative emotion. And I hear a voice that says, scoot over, sister, make room for shame. Shame. You know what I'm talking about because you felt it too. It is that awful feeling in the pit of your stomach, yeah, right there, that reminds you that this, whatever this is, is all your fault. The voice that says, if you were fill in the blank enough, strong enough, good enough, pretty enough, thin enough, smart enough, something enough. This terrible thing, whether it is a minor inconvenience or a horrible tragedy, would have been avoided. It is the realization that someone or some ones have seen you for what you are, which is not omnipotent, not omniscient, not faster than a speeding, ill-considered text message, not able to leap tall carpool lanes in a single bound, but instead an imperfect, vulnerable, and very, very human being. Several years ago, I became familiar with the work of a woman named Brene Brown. A research sociologist, she has spent over 20 years studying shame, particularly in women. Once I discovered her, I listened to her interviews and TED Talks and read her books with a fervor that I remembered from the days when I couldn't wait to get my hands on the next Nancy Drew book. And what I heard her saying resonated in me so deeply 
that I knew it was the truth. This is how she put it. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. We are wired for connection. When we are experiencing shame, we are afraid that we've exposed or revealed a part of us that jeopardizes our connection and our worthiness of acceptance. Now, if that sounds a little academic, let me suggest that it might be a little easier to grasp in light of what I call monologue for the zipping of jeans, which goes something like this. Dear Lord, they weren't this tight the last time I put them on. See, Kathy, this is what happens when you don't go to the gym for a week and you have pizza instead of salad for lunch and then you go home and you eat a piece of your mama's birthday cake. See, look at yourself. You are so fat. You are pathetic. You are weak and stupid. And did I mention pathetic? If you have never performed the monologue for the zipping of jeans or the equally damning monologue for the putting on of makeup, which begins with, where did that wrinkle come from? Please don't tell me. Because I have, and I do, on an unfortunately regular basis. And I suspect that my friend Brene has as well. And neither of us needs to feel any more shame than we already do. So that's shame. It is the emotional assault that results from feelings of unworthiness. Or, in spiritual terms, it is the attack that Satan launches every single time you and I seek to show up in our lives with faith and joy and service. So why, you are probably asking yourself at this moment, are we talking about shame when you were supposed to be getting away from things and having a wonderful afternoon away from the office or the yard work or the husband or the kids or whatever it was and come here to be encouraged and uplifted? Because there is some good news. And that good news is we don't have to live with it. We don't have to accept shame as simply an unavoidable part of being a woman like cramps and bad haircuts and nursery duty. We don't have to allow it to handcuff our faith and shackle our joy because there is an alternative. As Brene Brown collected data about people struggling with shame and the fear of never being enough, she also found story after story after story of other people, people who were able to live faithful, joyous lives not because they never experienced shame, because that would be like not human, but because they, or not because they walked through every day oozing self-esteem and believing that they were, thank you very much enough, but because they knew what it was like to fail, to feel left out, to fall short of the standards of other people in the world, but they also had two other things in common. First, Rather than hide or pretend, they actually embraced their imperfections, their vulnerabilities. They claimed them. And secondly, they actually shared their stories. 
Now, those of you who know me might imagine that I especially liked that last part, that part about telling stories. I have spent a lot of time over the last five years or so traveling around, sharing with people, answering questions about writing. And one of the things that people always want to ask me is, so why do you write? And the easy answer to that question is because I can't help it. But I also tell them whether they are a book club or a high school class or a civic organization is that I write because all of this, this world, this creation, this life, is just one big story. It is the story of creation. Creation that continues to this day as broken things are mended and lost things are redeemed. Each of us has a part of that story to tell. And I write to tell my part. I also tell them that each of them has a part of the story to tell as well. Each of them, each of you, is called to participate in that ongoing act of creation in her own way. So you can see why I got a little excited to find that my new best friend, Brene Brown, was thinking along those same lines. And her idea was actually backed up by research. These people, the ones that she found that were living such enviable lives by embracing their imperfections and telling their stories, she called wholehearted because she said they were living and loving with their whole hearts. Now, if you think about that, you all know where she got it. The prayer of confession in the communion liturgy. Remember that? Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. It's what we say when we ready ourselves to accept the bread and the wine. And we say it easily, publicly and repetitively, without shame. As we acknowledge our failure in accomplishing what Jesus told us was the greatest commandment. And we make that acknowledgement without shame because we know that nothing will ever make us more or less worthy of Christ's redemptive love. We make it and we rise from the altar having received the bread and wine to go out into the world to share the good news of Jesus Christ through our stories. Earlier this summer, our pastors, Bill and Stephanie, gave us a reading plan to go along with the summer sermon series. The plan included several psalms to be read each day in preparation for each Sunday's sermon. At about the time, same time, the women's ministries team and I were discussing a theme for today's event. And on day two of week one, I sat at my desk and I opened my Bible to Psalm 9. And it begins, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And there it was, Renee Brown's wholeheartedness popping up again. I have learned to pay attention to echoes and whispers and nudges, even when they make me uncomfortable. 
And in case that whole monologue of the zipping of jeans did not clue you in, let me just be real clear about it. This topic makes me uncomfortable. I would much prefer, much prefer, to stand up here and share with you about something like developing a quiet time or using your talents for God or evangelizing at work. Those things, they are easy. Shame and vulnerability, hard. And yet, when the echo that you hear is the voice of the Holy Spirit, you soon realize that hard is actually easier than the consequences of saying no. And so you sit down at your desk and you open your Bible and you pray something like, not what I had in mind, but it's your ballgame. So, with all your heart. It is a phrase that appears, depending upon the translation, somewhere between 8 and 24 times in the Bible. And if you include the phrase, with all my heart, his heart, her heart, their heart, the figure is somewhere between 23 and 49. Now, if you look at all those whole hearts, and that is throughout the Old and the New Testaments, you will see that human beings are implored by Scripture to do an awful lot of things wholeheartedly. Seek, serve, obey, know, return, trust, rejoice, and love, among other things. And just to make sure we get it, our friend Paul in Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do it with your whole heart. What is very clear then is if I, if you, want to live out from under the shadow and the weight of shame, if we truly want to make faith and joy and service the cornerstones of our lives, living with my whole heart, living with your whole heart, is not just supported by Brene Brown's research, but by something a little bit more authoritative, God's Word. So that realization sent me searching the scripture to see if I could find any wholehearted people, according to Brene Brown's definition, in the Bible, and make sure that they met her qualifications, which was one, that they embraced their imperfections, and two, told their stories. And because I wanted to find somebody that would be specifically applicable to us, I looked specifically for women. And I'll tell you, there really are a lot. What is so interesting about all of these women is that most of them are women we already know. They are the women who paraded across the flannel graph boards of our childhoods like the state representatives in the Miss America pageant. Beautiful and flawless, confident and shameless, and with absolutely nothing in common with you and me. For the remainder of the first part of our time together today, I want to talk about four of these women, and then when we get back together, we'll talk about one more. But we're going to talk about them as real women, not as Miss America contestants. We're going to talk about them as women with flaws and limitations, women who know shame. And among these four women, I think each of us will find at least one with whom we can identify. There's a woman with a difficult and sinful past. There's a woman who finds herself working in a field that is dominated by men. 
There's a woman who struggled to become a mother. And there's a woman who was called to a ministry she never wanted. Rahab lived in Jericho. Her life was far from perfect. In a culture in which women were generally dependent upon fathers and then husbands to provide for them, she had somehow found herself in a situation where she had to provide for herself. And without education or assets, she became a prostitute. We can probably assume from that that she didn't have many women friends. Can you imagine what it felt like to be Rahab to go to, say, the grocery store or, in her case, the market? All the other women avoiding her, making sure that if their husbands were with her, that they, uh, there was no eye contact made, no you know, glances of familiarity. Or how it felt to be Rahab as she walked through town and she saw other women laughing and talking together, uh, holding each other's babies, bouncing them on their knees, sharing news of the day. She had to make herself tough, hard-hearted, if you will. She had to do it to run a business, to maintain her own safety, to maintain her sanity. But in spite of all that toughness, she remained vulnerable in the very worst ways. Men, who were the source of her livelihood, were always going to be more powerful, physically, socially, and politically. And at the time she appears in Scripture, as if things weren't already hard enough for her, the word had been spreading that Jericho was about to be attacked. Rahab had heard a lot about these people that were about to attack Jericho and their God, enough to know that a prostitute probably wasn't going to be received really well if they took over. So when a couple of spies from the Hebrew nation came to her house looking for a place to stay, why shouldn't she give them a place to stay? Why shouldn't she take their money? This is how Joshua chapter 2 describes her predicament. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all of us who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So with all this information, Rahab takes a huge risk. She lets the Hebrew spies stay at her house and then offers them a way of escape, receiving in exchange a promise that when Jericho falls, she and her family will be saved. She says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She didn't know if she could trust those spies. They were spies, after all. 
She didn't know if the Hebrew attack was going to be successful. She didn't know if her own treachery would be discovered by her own people and used as an excuse to take all her assets or even worse, kill her and her family. She could have been paralyzed by her lack of knowledge, but she chose not to be. She chose not to hide from the truth of her identity or her predicament, and with her whole heart, she took an incredible risk and gambled everything. The troops commanded by Joshua were ultimately successful. Rahab and her family were saved. But what about the other prong of this wholeheartedness, the telling of the story? Joshua's recounting of the siege and fall of Jericho ends with these words, and she lives among the Israelites to this day, which could mean that Rahab had simply quietly assimilated herself into Hebrew culture, keeping her dark history a secret except for one other piece of evidence in the scripture. Matthew chapter 1, which you may remember is the genealogy of Jesus. Only four women are listed in that genealogy, and one of them is Rahab. Something tells me that Rahab's joy at being adopted into God's family was something she couldn't keep to herself. Something that she probably told over and over. Something that became what I call family folklore. And that eventually that story was passed down through the generations to the family poet, Rahab's great-great-grandson, who just happened to grow up to be the king of Israel. You remember him, the one who killed Goliath. The one who wrote, In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. That's from Psalm 22. I kind of wonder if David might have written those words, remembering the stories that were told to him about the fall of Jericho. And I also think it's interesting that it is Psalm 22 that Jesus quoted when he was on the cross. Isn't it amazing how the story of a prostitute weaves itself into the story of a king who writes poetry, into the story of a king who redeems the world? It is amazing. And amazing is exactly what we can expect when we give ourselves over to wholeheartedness. <coughs> Excuse me. I went to the wrong side, Robbie. I will try to cough over here next time. <coughs> you can tell I'm not used to this. Our next wholehearted woman is Deborah, the only female judge of Israel. She was also a prophetess. And when I started looking at her, it occurred to me that would be kind of like having my job and Stephanie's at the same time. And I just went, oh, <laughs> no, thank you. Sometimes I don't even want my job. It would be hard enough to have those jobs in good times, 
But when Deborah was holding court under the palm of Deborah in the hill country between Ramah and Bethel, it was anything but good times. Israel had once again done evil in the sight of the Lord. Don't we all wish we had a dollar for every time they did that? And had been given over this time to one of the kings of Canaan, whose army commander, Sisera, had oppressed them for 20 years. Deborah was a woman with what was usually a man's job, and she was doing it under the rule of a foreign government. Regardless of how she felt about herself and her ability, that had to have been hard. She had to have had moments of, if not doubt, at least questioning, am I enough for this? In Judges 4, Scripture tells us that Deborah sent for the Israelite commander Barak and told him that she had received a command from God and that he was to attack the Canaanites. This is how their conversation went according to the writer of Judges. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, before we assume that Barak was a coward, a wimp of a man, and I tell you, I mean, that was my assumption. I'll admit to it. There are a couple of things that we need to remember. First, the Israelites were an occupied nation and without a standing army. The 10,000 men that Deborah so casually mentions would have to be volunteers, and it would be Barak who would have to convince them to take up weapons against a very strong enemy. You can't blame him for wanting to be sure that Deborah was convinced that this message was really from God. And he probably figured that if she agreed to come, she must really be convinced. And second, we know that Barak was a man of faith and valor because he is listed in Hebrews 11, which is often called the Hall of Fame of Faith. He's listed there with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of those folks. That he wanted Deborah with him is probably less an indication of his weakness than an acknowledgement of her strength. So, Barak says he'll do what Deborah has told him, but only if she goes with him. Now, don't you just love Deborah's response, which was, certainly. That's it. Certainly. She didn't try to convince him otherwise. She didn't criticize him for asking. She does, though, warn him that the glory of the promised defeat would never be his, but would be given to a woman. Now, you know that had to sting. Deborah's limitations were real. She was respected, but she was still an anomaly. She still had to deal with the old ideas, the old ways, the old assumptions that men lead, women follow. She was not a soldier. She had neither the training nor the equipment to justify such ready agreement to walk out into battle. But nevertheless, she chose to disregard those limitations 
and not allow herself to be labeled with hesitation, fear, or doubt. It is interesting that outside of a couple of chapters in Judges, Deborah's name appears nowhere else in Scripture. So even after we find that they were successful in this battle, we hear nothing else about Deborah. So what of her story? How can we say that Deborah was wholehearted? She's not listed in Hebrews 11. She's not lauded by future generations or held up as an example to little Hebrew girls. Study hard and one day you might grow up to be like Deborah. And the woman who was given the glory for the defeat of the Canaanites, it wasn't even her. It was Yael, another woman, who ended up killing Sisera by hammering a nail through his temple. That's always been a very gory image for me to consider. I don't know that I could do that. Um, and this week while I was studying, I have to tell you all this, I saw something on um, a meme on Facebook that said, don't fashion me into a maiden that needs saving from a dragon. I am the dragon, and I will eat you whole. <laughs> and I thought about Yael, and I thought, well, I guess the world needs Deborah's and Yael's. I'm not real sure which one I am. At any rate, how did the story of brave and righteous Deborah get told? The poem known as The Song of Deborah is recorded in Judges 5. And this is what I found out. It is believed to be one of the oldest writings that the Bible preserves. It was written most likely in the 11th century B.C. and written very shortly after the battle between Sisera and the Israelites. By the 1st century B.C., it had become a part of the temple liturgy one of the canticles that was performed responsively by the congregation and the leader in the Jewish worship service regularly. And then in 1733, the composer George Friedrich Handel debuted his oratorio titled Deborah. It is a magnificent work that is still performed today. Imagine that. From 11 centuries B.C., down to today. Over 3,000 years after she gave her whole heart to the service of God's people, Deborah's story continues to be told. Hannah wanted a child. It was that simple. The fact that her husband loved her, loved her more than he loved his other wife, the one who had given him children, made no difference. I don't have to guess to know that everyone in this room identifies with Hannah in some way. If you haven't experienced infertility yourself, you know someone who has. Or maybe you have an unfulfilled desire that has nothing to do with fertility but with other issues like singleness. Whatever the reason, I don't know any woman who hasn't at some point felt the longing of empty arms, either our own or those of someone we love. We might not be able to fully identify with Rahab or Deborah, but we know Hannah. She was actually a woman who would have been envied by many. Her husband was well-to-do, he loved her, and her needs were met. 
Her perfect life was missing just one piece. But that piece was a big one. Many women in her situation would have tried to hide the disappointment, the sadness, the longing. And she could have, but she didn't. When people asked her the inevitable questions, when are you and Elkanah going to start a family? She could have replied, oh, we're just waiting for the right time. Or better, to demonstrate her godliness, we're just leaving the timing up to God. When she got invited to baby showers, she could have sat on the sidelines with a sweet, serene, sanctified smile plastered on her face and oohed and awed over each tiny dress and carefully carved spoon. And when Panina, the other wife, the one with the children, taunted her by saying things like, I'm telling you, Hannah, you are so lucky not to have to run around behind these children all day. They just wear me out. She could have said, you are so right. I am so glad I don't have to wash out for sticky fingers in my hair and spit up on my shoulder. <laughs> she could have, but she didn't. She did not keep her desire a secret or pretend it didn't exist. She owned the imperfection, whatever it was, that had kept her from becoming a mother. And when she went to the temple, she threw it all out there on the altar. She wailed and beat her fist and asked God the hard questions in a voice so loud and so strident that Eli, the high priest, heard her and accused her of being drunk. She did it because she had reached the end of her ability to carry the weight of that desire by herself any longer. And all she had left, all she had left, was her trust in God. Lord Almighty, she prayed, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Do you know what that is? That is trusting God with your whole heart. That is trusting him so completely to give you your heart's desire that you are willing to hand it back as an offering. Hannah trusted God to give her a child and then, when he came through, trusted him with her child, giving Samuel up to a life of service in the temple. That is wholeheartedness. The last mention of Hannah in Scripture is in 1 Samuel 2.21. And the Lord took note of Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. I think we all recognize that the ultimate act of creation in which humans are allowed to participate is that of bringing a child into the world. There is no act more splendid, more awe-inspiring. But we must remember that Hannah's willingness to embrace her imperfection in such a way that ultimately resulted in that perfect act of creativity five times 
is only part of the way her story was told. Just one demonstration of how she found a way to share with the world how she had handled the meanness of her sister wife, how she had overcome the despair of infertility, how she had held on to her belief in the faithfulness of God when there was very little reason to do so. This is a good place to point out a couple of things. First, it's my opinion that if you want to understand the Bible by just reading the Bible, you're probably going to remain confused. Second, the internet, specifically Wikipedia, is a wonderful thing. This is what I found out. The prayer that we know as Hannah's prayer, the prayer that she offered after leaving Samuel at the temple and that is recorded in 1 Samuel 2, is considered by most Jewish scholars as the model for how to pray. Really? That's what I thought. Out of all the prayers in the Old Testament prayed by the patriarchs and the kings and the poets, the prayer of a mother is the how-to for Jews everywhere. And what about this? That particular prayer is read every year in every synagogue in the world on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Every time the congregation celebrates the anniversary of the creation of Adam and Eve, they hear the voice of Hannah down through the centuries. And every single Wednesday... In the Roman Catholic Church, Hannah's prayer is read as a part of the service of morning prayer. I think what that tells us is that sometimes we tell our story best when we tell it simply by offering, as the old hymn says, our songs of loudest praise. And then there is Mary, the mother of Jesus, a pregnant teenager. Is there anyone more, more vulnerable? When I was in eighth grade, an unmarried pregnant woman was still a rarity, something about which people spoke in whispers. And in, when I was in the eighth grade, one of the girls on the basketball team at my school got pregnant. And my friends and I avoided talking about it as though the condition was contagious. A couple of years later, I remember, by this time we'd gotten to high school, we had a discussion. Lord only knows what brought this about. If you remember, Rita, please tell me. We had this discussion about whose parents among ours would kick her out if she got pregnant. Now, at that point in time, I was still pretty sure that all boys had cooties. But I knew in my heart of hearts that if I ever got pregnant, my parents would never kick me out. They would never disown me. They had taught me well the depth and nature of God's love. But that was in the 1970s, people. That was not in the first century A.D. when the punishment for being an unmarried pregnant woman wasn't social ostracism or even banishment from your home, but stoning. And not only was Mary pregnant, 
Let's not forget that she was obviously insane, a condition that was generally associated with demon possession because she claimed that God was the father of this child she was carrying. There was also the disgrace and expense to her fiancé and his family who had probably already begun expending money in preparation for the marriage by beginning to add on to their house. And despite her condition, they would probably have to spend even more to effectuate a divorce from her. Mary knew all that. She knew the consequences of saying yes to God when he asked of her the impossible. She knew she might die. If it wasn't by stoning, it might be by childbirth. She knew that accepting the assignment the angel set out was going to change absolutely everything she had ever imagined about her future. To anyone else, her situation was as precarious as it could possibly be. And yet, she chose to embrace it. She chose to step right into those impossible circumstances, those possible consequences. She chose to believe. To believe with her whole heart. Believe and say in response to the angel's pronouncement, be it done unto me according to your word. As a result, she may well be the best known woman in the history of the world. Her story is told for her over and over in the scriptures and over and over in the art and music and literature created through centuries. In everything from the earliest paintings on the catacombs of Rome to the words of the Beatles, let it be. Her unsurpassed faith and belief in the call on her life are presented as an example of what it means to live a wholehearted life. Nowhere, though, is it told more beautifully, more eloquently, more passionately than it is told in her own words, the extraordinary prayer we call the Magnificat. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, for he that is mighty hath magnified me, and holy is his name. Rahab, the redeemed sinner, Deborah, the nation builder, Hannah, the mother, and Mary, the believer of impossible things. All women with unique combinations of vulnerabilities, imperfections, and challenges. All women who could have allowed those vulnerabilities, imperfections, and challenges to produce shame, but all women with the commonality that they embraced them and shared their stories with the world. In doing so, they lived gloriously wholehearted lives. They are our spiritual mothers and sisters. They have shown us how it is done. How can we not follow their examples? Before we take a break, let me ask you this question. And you can think about it while we take this break. What is worth everything you've got? What is worth your whole 
heart. 